This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I am Michael Casey and as always, I'm joined by my co-host Sheila Warren. You can listen to this weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcast, and we would love to hear from you. So tell us what you think about it. You can email us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line money reimagined. Uh, I'm really looking forward to today's show because we get to uh, bring onto the show a former colleague of mine, somebody who I feel feel is a, a fellow journeyman through the world of journalism and crypto. Brady Dale, who is now a co-writer at uh, Axios Crypto Newsletter. Uh, Brady was, prior to this, uh, he was at Coindesk with us and uh, a longstanding writer at Coindesk. So it's going to be really interesting. This, of course, is to talk about Brady's relatively recently released book, SBF, How the FTX Bankruptcy Unwound, Crypto's Very Bad Good Guy. It is a rollicking read and one that I thoroughly recommend all of you pick up and dive into. I, to me, it does more, Sheila, than just uh, explore the SBF story. It feels like this sort of examination of why are we here generally with regards to crypto. I don't know if you've got any quick thoughts on, on anything along those lines before we bring Brady in. Yeah, well, you know, I think it reflects the conversations you and I had both on the show and, and offline just in the wake of all of this. I mean, the wake continues, obviously, but in the immediate wake of all of this last last year, last winter, just, you know, taking stock, right? Like, what is it that we believe and why are we in this space? And what is it that does allow this space to be malleable to some of these folks that don't have the same moral code or compass, if any, that, you know, we have? And, and I think those are really interesting questions. And what I enjoyed about this, this read is, is I think Brady also went through some of that. It certainly it seemed, and I'd love to hear about that from him. But I think everybody in crypto who remains in crypto had to go through a similar journey. Uh, and are, in many cases are still going through that journey. So I think tying in, you know, there's a political philosophy that underlies a lot of people's beliefs in these systems and those political philosophies vary widely. One of those I would call EA, effective altruism, a political philosophy personally, but I'd love to get into that and how that's defined because I think some EA adherents would reject that framing. Uh, there's obviously libertarians, there's deep progressives. So it's not that there's a one size fits all philosophy underlying the belief system that leads many of us to think that this is a, a revolutionary and critically important technology. Um, but there's a variety of those, but everybody kind of has something like that. And so I think the fundamental question to me about this book was, is there a point in time at which the philosophy itself becomes uh, too extreme or too dangerous? And are there some political philosophies that lend themselves to that kind of extremism more than others? And is belief in crypto itself becoming a bit of a form of a political philosophy. So those are where my kind of my thoughts went as I was reading through the book. But I would love to start bringing in Brady just to get a sense of his motivations from, from the horse's mouth, as it were, about, yeah. about this book. Yeah. Yeah, Brady, why don't you just jump in here? Um, I think sure. one of the things that struck me 
was it felt like yeah you brought yourself into the book quite a bit right as a reporter and it's a device that lots of reporting does but i felt like by doing so you were going through this journey of discovery and reflection on what you yourself believed in and what mattered and all this so maybe if you can speak to that a little bit would be a good place to start for readers who hate nonfiction books that are super first person from the journalists, I wouldn't say it's like super like that, but there it is a there's a decent amount of it. It's not like through the whole thing, but yeah, you dot into it and come back. I think that's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so and that was a choice that I made. I mean, a part of why I made that choice, to be honest, is you know, before I even started this book, before I was asked to do it by Wiley, everyone knew that Michael Lewis was doing a book, and so I thought if I had any hope of standing out against Michael Lewis at all, I had to do something kind of spicy. It couldn't be like really dry. And, you know, a way that you can sort of spice things up is by putting yourself in there and giving your personal reflections and things. And and I think I flatter myself that I, I can offer a pretty good spicy take here and there. And so, I, you know, by enabling myself to do that, that, that was sort of that was sort of the motivation. But it was also, you know, to Sheila's point, if there is a topic that I'm interested in on a deeper level in crypto, and I, I did some of my earlier essay writing on this, when I, for the first earlier essay writing I'd done this at Coindesk. It's about how I, I view cryptocurrencies, at least the successful ones, as instantiations of actual philosophies. It's the first time that we've sort of like been able to kind of make philosophy real in something that's more profound than a book. And that's where we're able to make philosophy into money kind of um, with cryptocurrency. And so this was a chance for me to kind of talk about that. And uh, so, yeah, I felt like to, in order to do that, like I kind of had to um, I had to put my understanding in there because I wasn't going to have some other source who's going to be able to explain those things you know, I just needed to do it myself. So I had to kind of be present a little bit for some of the story. Yeah, I mean, that, that interesting idea like about instantiations of philosophy. And I think it's really relevant uh, as we grapple with what appears like, certainly at the policy level and the sort of the public discourse level, a backlash against crypto because, you know, I, and I, I, I must say I get defensive about it, but I think crypto gets lumped into one, one sort of monolithic way of seeing the world, that there is mm-hmm. this libertarian view and the sort of the stereotype of the crypto bro is that concept. But I don't think that's what you're saying. In fact, I think you're saying something far more interesting, which is that each of these blockchains, each of these communities is in and of themselves an instantiation of that, right? I mean, well, the good ones, I actually only think that Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, and honestly, this is kind of the (laughs) the funny one, but, but Dogecoin are the only ones that really, really have coherent philosophies behind them. Um, and so, and that's why I think they're the three most important cryptocurrencies. So, you know, Bitcoin is kind of the libertarian, self-sovereign kind of worldview. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's sort of the, the core thing. Ethereum people are utopians and Dogecoin people, Dogecoin reflects this idea um, that ideas have actual monetary value and that collectives can come together to grow that value, right? So it's, it's sort of, a, it's a, it's sort of a, a mechanistic philosophy, but it's still a profound idea that they've created. Like Dogecoin people by collaborating have continued to allow Doge to rise over time. Everything else is kind of searching for a philosophy. Sometimes I sort of think that Cosmos is maybe getting there, but I don't know, you know, certain other things like Solana and XRP, they're completely empty, you know, idea-wise. So, um, so all the tribes, XRP army and that, they're just really just... Pushing their they're back, just they're basically. just avaricious. Right. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> just that's just money searching. Right. You know, that could change. I don't think Dogecoin was a, a coherent thing early on. I think I think that was an emergent phenomenon of Dogecoin that certainly wasn't Jackson Palmer's intention in creating it. You know, but as a big point that I you know always make when I talk about this stuff is the the intentions of a creator are next to irrelevant. So uh, yeah, yeah, other ones could arise. Well, I want to get into that a little bit because I I agree. I think the intentions of the creator are are irrelevant. Is it, is it 
really interesting point and one we should spend a little time on because it is about how a community arises around some of these things. And I'm curious, you know, what you think was the sort of liftoff. Well, Bitcoin, I think we don't have to maybe spend as much time on because that seems relatively obvious. But what was the kind of liftoff, especially for something like a Dogecoin, you know, where you think it transformed in your view into having this philosophy underlying it versus being just kind of a a joke, right? Because it started off really as kind of a joke. Well, these people, Dogecoin, I mean, Dogecoin, you know, I mean, we'll see the next time there's a boom if this really is true. But having been around for a while, um, you know, it's almost like clockwork. If Bitcoin really pops within two or three months of that, a, a random bunch of outsiders will discover Dogecoin, think it's funny, and then it'll pop. And like it, it happened in 2017 and it happened in 2021. I'm going to guess if there's another boom, it's going to happen again. And every time that happens, it's this sort of, some of the OGs are still there, but a bunch of new people arrive. They think it's funny. They start playing around with the joke. And that action of playing around with the joke together causes to rise in value until you know, it, it creates, it takes up idea space in the collective imagination and that it, that causes the token to rise because it gets more people interested in it, more people want to buy it, right? So like Dogecoin sort of, Dogecoin was kind of the original NFT, like, because that's what NFTs, at least up to now, I mean, there'll, there'll be more things later on, but what NFTs really are is the more some set of NFTs can create, can take up mental space in the community of people who are interested in NFTs, the more valuable it becomes. Well, Dogecoin did that first, so it, it proved it. And like Dogecoin is the place where, you know, people continue to keep collaborating around this one big idea together and making the idea bigger and bigger over time. So when did it happen? I guess it first happened in like, I guess, you know, late 2017, early 2018, whenever that last, you know, big Doge bump happened uh, in that prior boom. It's sort of like, I think when when that emergent phenomenon came out, I think every, and every time they trot out Jackson Palmer to say, this is stupid, they're just making it stronger. Um, you know, so uh, yeah. So from Dogecoin and the philosophy of Dogecoin, yeah. uh, back to the the man, the title, the SBF uh, yeah. of the book. And, you know, the key part of it, I think the, the segue there is this, this philosophical concept, right? That there yeah. is, you know, as we grapple with trying to make sense of it all, I think one of the reasons why also it's really interesting is it's, it's right there in your title, you know, this good, bad guy. Was it bad, good guy? The number of people who wanted Sam Bankman-Fried to represent crypto. This idea that that there he was, embodying all that is good about it. What does that say about us? You know, turning the lens back on ourselves. And I know, as you said, you were going through this journey as you went through it. Like the the fact that that I mean, he kind of basically exploited that instinct. It seems to me. And just to back up a tiny bit, a point I make about Sam in the book, and that you know, in particular, one of my sources really supported me on, is that I think on. To circle back to the philosophy thing just for a moment, typically up to now, up to, up until Sam kind of, crypto was this thing where coins just competed with each other and those that had coherent worldviews just competed with each other in the marketplace of ideas, which was an actual marketplace that, you know, had real money at stake. But then Sam comes along and he is, he doesn't care about crypto's ideas at all. I and mean, in fact, doesn't care about no. crypto at all. It's just mm-hmm. the way that he saw that he could make a lot of money really fast so he could advance a completely non-crypto set of ideas. He was yep. sold on he was sold on this VA thing. So I think that's an important thing to understand about Sam. Like he was a, he was definitely not a nihilist, but he was a crypto nihilist, which made him kind of powerful in the space because he didn't really he had bags, obviously, but he didn't particularly care about any of his bags. As you know, as one of my sources told me, the, the token he was most interested in early on was Tether, which is such a funny thing to find interesting. But okay, so then what does it say about us? I mean, I think crucially, cryptocurrency as a broad unified community, you know, you put Bitcoin and Ethereum and all of them together, the big weakness that it's always had, 
and I've seen this since early on, is its insecurity. I mean, it wants desperately to be validated by the world. And, and the reason it wants to be validated by the world is because as soon as that happens, you know, number will go up like crazy. And so like the sooner it can happen, the better. And Sam kind of maybe even partly because of his crypto nihilism sort of looked like this guy who might be able to make that case. He looked like someone, you know, ready made to be like, you know, just nerdy enough to sort of be crypto-y credible, but also like super ready to like play nice with people in DC and sort of talk and speak their language. And so I think folks really thought that he could open the door to um, regulatory clarity. And of course, as soon as that comes, like the whole market would really pop and then everybody would have Lambos. You know, I think I think that's what I mean. So the, so crypto's two weaknesses, really, I guess there's two weaknesses there. It's one is it's really hungry for credibility. It's got this insecurity to it. And two, I mean, for all that is cool about the space, and there's a lot, it is at its core, a pretty avaricious space. People want to get rich, right? And so that's also a weakness. I mean, you know, there was a time when I actually found Sam's approach, because I agree with you. I think he was a person that didn't really uh, pretend to care, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I actually found that a little bit refreshing, to be honest, because mm -hmm. there was a period of time, certainly after the ICO, you know, disaster, right? I mean, I literally, I, I think I said last week at some talk I gave, you know, part of my job when I joined the forum was to read through a bunch of white papers. And some of them were like a pigeon at a typewriter, right? Like proto chat GPT, you know, it was just terrible, yeah. like not even pretending to string together any coherence of any kind. And I was so disgusted by it. Um, you know, and I think that there was an element of that. Now, of course, uh, you know, very quickly, it's, it's, that goes to, so, so there's an element, right? Where, to some extent, people that are, were kind of like, look, I'm here to do this thing. And, and of course, the point was he was there to make a lot of money because he had a philosophy he believed, I mean, where he's in the past tense, one presumes he still believes in all this stuff, although I have no idea. Maybe you know, since he spoke to him relatively recently, right? Does he still adhere to EA? And also maybe just walk through effective altruism for those of our listeners who don't know what it is. Maybe this is the underlying philosophy that drove Sam Bankman-Fried and a lot of his adherence into what I would kind of call them. So maybe you can tell our listeners a bit about what EA is and, you know, how it manifested, as it were, within Sam's psyche and how it justified some of the, at least in his mind, some of the moves that he made. Sure. Before I do that, actually, I'm curious, something you said made me, I have a question for the, the two of you. When did the two of you first meet Sam on whatever level. I first met him in mid 2020, right at the beginning of DeFi summer, like as as a uh, comp was popping. So I, I, you know, it's been a little while, but that's when I first met him. It sounds like maybe you met him earlier, Sheila, or no, probably around. That's a great question. I I met him on a Zoom first, so in sure, person, and I never met I him face to face. We talked. Yeah, yeah, I met him. We were on a panel together, so I wouldn't even okay. say we met. We literally just on a panel together over Zoom, and that I was still at the forum, so it must have been. 2020, I would say, okay, probably like late time. 2020 is my guess. How about you, Michael? Um, I, mine was would have been a little lighter, I think. It must have been, it was actually weirdly at an NFT NYC event that okay. Circle and Solana had jointly sponsored. Cool. And uh, so, so the Solana bit is clear. Um, and then, yeah, I got introduced to him and had a sort of a sideline chat to him. But but he was the yeah, he was the magnet at that point. He was the he was the wunderkind that everyone was sort of going to. It's just funny because yeah. he was around since 2017, but I didn't really yeah. know of him until nope. until 2020. It's kind of when he comes along. So okay, to your question, Sheila, about uh, about um EA. Um, so EA is kind of like there's sort of two ideas to EA. Um, is 
One, you know, if you're an adherent, that means you should devote your life to doing as much good as you possibly can. And for some small number of people, that means doing good works. That means, you know, joining a good organization, helping to spread mosquito nets around the world or, you know, teach low income people job skills or whatever, like, you know, doing good works. But but for most people, because, you know, there's diminishing returns to scale on people doing the work. Um, for most people, the best that they can do is make lots of money and, you know, preferably in a way that isn't destructive and then plow as much of that money as you can afford to plow into organizations that are doing good work, which gets to the second. And this is the really crucial part. Of, so that's the altruism. The effective part is you are also meant to adhere to some kind of objective standard for choosing what should what is what is the most good like what's the most bang for your buck in terms of the money that you give and so ea has a variety of institutions who try to assess you know different good things and sort of how good they really are and what's the least wasteful and what's you know delivering you know high impact and um and they really push their people to give to things on that list and if you get deep into the culture you know, you'll participate in like really detailed debates and conversations about like what's the most important things to give to and what are, what charities are truly the most effective and what does effective mean. I mean, there's all kinds of variation in here. That's something that when I was kind of hanging out with them, I found that to be kind of fun. I liked that, you know, I like deep conversations about heavy stuff. Like I thought that was cool. And so, you know, they were pretty unanswerable questions, but it was nice that people cared to at least try to be more thoughtful about it. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the two ideas of EA is like do as much good as you can in the world and try to do it. Um, based on some objective reasoning about what that good is. And is it fair to say, Brady, that if we boil down the particular brand of it that SBF was applying to the logic of FTX and crypto, that he was making this kind of rational uh, balance sheet type assessment that I'm going to just make as much money as I can out of this. And crypto is the place for me to do that, regardless of what I think about crypto or mm -hmm. whatever harm I may or may not be doing to people, but that's a lesser of two evils. It's justified by the fact that I can then turn that money into this ultimate effective good. Is that is that the encapsulation? Yeah, totally. And I think probably in Sam's view, and I don't even think this is that unfair, it's like, you know, new markets always, if if they end up being successful, I mean, there's new markets that try to come along and just die. But hmm. if this new market is successful, it's going to have wild growth early on. And so if you get in early, you can make a ton of money. And the nice thing about crypto is, you know, whatever debates about the harm of Bitcoin environmentally or whatever aside, it's like largely a, a synthetic world. It's a digital world. Like you can't really, you, you can not really feel that bad about sort of being involved in that world because it's like, it isn't really having much impact on the rest of the planet. You know, one way of looking at crypto is it's honestly just this big global casino that a lot of people are throwing discretionary money into. And it's just like, hey, <laughs> they're they're playing a casino game. If I can win the most of it, like, you know, they knew what the risks were. And so I think that was kind of Sam's calculus. And so he's just like, look, this is going to go really fast over a little while. It's a chance for me to, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to make a giant pile of money. And then I can be one of the greatest philanthropists of all time. So I think, I think that was his calculation. You know, he was just like, this is the spot right now at the time that I'm alive and have the energy to do this. And so I'm all in. Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. 
Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. So here's what I find so interesting about this. Okay. So a uh, little known fact, at one point in time, I was uh, I received an offer to go be the COO of a company that was oriented around effective altruism. Um, and so I did some, you know, digging into this whole thing. And, and, and to your point, Brady, you know, the initial concept is kind of hard to argue with, like try to do things effectively and, you know, and do a lot of good and all that. But as you yeah. dig more into it, there is, I think, A, I didn't really necessarily agree with the level of abstraction that led to the calculus of what to do, right? Because there is this whole, and look, we don't have to get, I'm not putting you in a situation of defending EA or anything like that, but there's a whole body of work around this and criticism of it and challenges around it and all of that. And everyone can make their own assessment of what they believe. And regardless, for me, it just did not sit well. It just fundamentally did not sit well with me. Mm -hmm. This idea that in a trolley car problem where your choice is, you know, save the one child or kill the four, whatever, any, any posit like that, if there was an immediacy to being able to do good that was immediately recognizable versus potentially possibly down the line, maybe having an impact, even right. if that, even if the possibility was 0.001 that you would save the planet forever, you were meant to kind of focus there. And I found that very challenging personally for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons, right? Yeah. I had no judgment about either stance on that, by the way. But as I started thinking about it even more later on, especially when all this, I didn't think frankly much about EA after I turned that job down for a while, quite a while. And then when all this stuff with with Sam came up again, I started thinking about it again. And I don't really see how, if you're engaging in a philosophy that says that the goal should be to amass as many resources as you possibly can and divert them in some fashion, whether you amass them or not, divert as many resources as possible to the causes, to the problems that this calculation or calculus has determined to be the most valuable to the world. And there's a lot of words in there, right? It isn't humanity. It isn't necessarily the planet. All of those things I think have to be unpacked and are complicated. So that's step one. I don't see how that doesn't put you in a situation where you don't inevitably try or be tempted at least to break the law. I just don't Mm -hmm. see how right? Because it's kind of that calculus. I was a general counsel of an organization and I know a lot of generals counsel. And I was lucky that I was GC of a nonprofit, which had, again, a pretty rigid code of integrity and all of that. But a lot of folks, I mean, the practical advice for sometimes for big companies is pay the fine, settle the case, you know, whatever, right? Do the thing, take the risk because the consequences you're going to owe some big fine. You can afford the fine, do the crime. What That's a calculus that actually some folks go through. I personally find it distasteful, but I'm a lawyer. So there you have it. I don't see how you don't inevitably wind up there. And yeah. and when I look at the Sam situation, it seems to me like he took he did this horrific thing, but the people that he was harming were not the priority. It was the amassing again of these resources to divert to causes that were pandemic preparedness or whatever the things were he decided, right? The narcissism of that is really challenging. So I'm just curious to get your sense about all of that. A, does this inevitably lead to quote, you know, bad behavior or at least unlawful behavior because you can justify that in service of the greater good. And not to say that that was necessarily, you know, the thought pattern going through Sam or any of his adherents' minds. But I'm just, I'm curious as you, because you spent quite a bit of time, it sounds like, thinking about this part. And it certainly features prominently in your book, this whole EA movement. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's three things I want to talk about there. And I'll try to do them fast. But One is I want to come back to one more thing about EA, and then I want to talk about Chesterton's fence, which is really relevant Mm -hmm. to what you just said. 
then mm-hmm. I want to talk about Sam specifically. So the thing I want to say about EA first is I think I did EA a little bit of disservice in my description of the two things. There's really a third thing about EA that I found when I was hanging out with them that is not a part of the philosophy, but I think is actually really important. EA is a really awesome community. Like if you're a part of EA, an EA group anywhere, and you're traveling around the world, you can look on Facebook and see if there's an EA Vancouver or whatever. And there probably is. And you can post it and you can be like, hey, I've got a night free while I'm in Vancouver. Do any EAs want to hang out? And like probably you'll get a bunch of yes responses to that. And that exists all over the world. And EA events that happen in whatever community that you're in, they always have a big hangout session afterwards. If it's a big enough city, there's probably one or two EA group houses. There is just like a very real community to it, which is unlike most other groups that I've seen. And I, I before I was a journalist, I spent a decade as a professional activist. And the activist worlds I worked in were never as rich as what I saw in EA. And, and all of that's really nice, right? And like, if you just take it to the point of this is a group of people who are trying to maximize the good of their lives, it's fantastic. You know, like, that's a really good thing. We're glad to have it out there. The problem is some people take it too far. So I actually do the, my three points in a different order. So let's go to Sam. The core point of my book, the core argument I'm making is that the bad things that happened at FTX and Alameda Research are Sam's fault and no one else's. I put all the blame at his feet. It's not Ye's fault. It's a nice set of ideas that some people like. You know, there's a bunch of sets of ideas out there that have been broadly good and helpful for the world that some people have taken too far. It's always the people who take them too far that are the ones at fault. And I think Sam was fundamentally an egomaniac who wanted to prove to the world that he was the smartest person in it. And I think he really thought that, right? And EA helped give him justification and a framework for doing that. And EA gave him a taste for risk that he found helpful. And it also gave him a willing body of people, thanks to that community, who'd be as excited to work for him for free or for very little early on as he got things launched, right? There was a set of resources that EA provided but the fault is Sam's and Sam's alone. I think it's entirely his doing. What's funny about what you said, Sheila, and I haven't said this in any of my other discussions, it's a great point that you make. You know, there's there's this whole language in the EA and the adjacent rationalist world. You know, most EAs are rationalists, but not all rationalists are EAs, but it's kind of people who try to look at the world in a, a very objective way. There's all these, there's this whole language they have. And one of the things which rationalists talk about all the time, and it's a really cute idea, it's um it's Chesterton's fence. And and the idea is there's a British writer, I can't remember his name, something Chesterton, who he he described Chesterton's fence. And he was just like, sometimes when you're out in the world, you know, especially if you're in a place like Europe where, you know, there was ancient peoples there once upon a time, and then they kind of went away and the people came back, you you may find this random fence out in a field somewhere, and you might not see the point of the fence. And so you might just be like, I don't see what this fence is doing. You tear down the fence. And then later on, something happens, you know, a bunch of rabbits invade or something, and you're just like, oh, that's why the fence was there. And what's like, and rationalists talk about this all the time, that sometimes there are things in place that don't seem to make sense, but, you know, maybe you shouldn't tear it down because, you know, there might have been a reason for it. And kind of what you were talking about, I think, is a great example of Chesterton's fences in organizational lives. And I think when you look at the, at the FTX story, they were really ignoring a lot of Chesterton's fences. You know, they, they weren't keeping books super well. They weren't using normal HR procedures. They were... They were, you know, just running, running fast, really moving fast and breaking things at a really high pace, you know. And it's just funny because Sam knew better than this. The discussion, I can guarantee you, he's had 100 discussions about Chesterton's fence. He's probably made great speeches at different times about sort of honoring some Chesterton's fence here and there. And yet he was blowing up all over the place 
Um, because, you know, because Sam knew better than everyone on everything. I, I think it's such an excellent point, right? It, and it's it's interesting to kind of tag that into the general disdain of institutions that I do think is shared across, uh, you know, let's just focus on the three kind of groups you talked about, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Doge, right? There is this, maybe disdain is the wrong word, but general distrust of institutions. Um, but of course, institutions, you know, what they what they serve to do on occasion is enforce some of the Chesterton's <laughs> fencing, right? Mm-hmm. And to say, you got to do this thing. Now, I think it's healthy to, of course, question, you know, those things. And I think that's the point sure. you're making. But on some level, you got to have reasons why, you know, you're kind of, what are you disrupting and why? And what are the consequences of that it has to be something that you're at least analyzing instead of just kind of blowing it all up to your point, if you don't really mm-hmm. understand point was. And if that point is still legitimate and your whatever your endeavor is, then there you are. And suddenly the rabbits are invading and we're in a water stood down situation. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so, so the philosophical stuff here is greatness. It's clear again from, from your book and you put it laid it out there, Brady, that like, it's really about him, right? You, you're laying blame at his feet. And so this is really a book about, about Sam Bankman-Fried um, more than anything else, but it's also very useful book in charting a particular era in in crypto history you know you talk about the rise of DeFi and 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 sort of like this machine that would grow out of that and these opportunities that people got to sort of you know liquidity mining and, and all, all of this sort of like massive sort of forking of new ideas that was just building this this you know whirlpool almost of uh of, of at least you know hype and speculation at that time the big casino as you as you talked about it but then you sort of inevitably like there's this sort of very shakespearean feel to it all because you all know what's coming right uh there's a chapter in there you know i think it's the uh the nine days in november and you uh i'm gonna do the the sort of the shameless self-plug where you just highlight the fact that coindesk broke this story that you know absolutely you know it's it, it, ian allison of course and you said you know you can't name a single dispatch that, that had a more impact on the industry this year on the business world this year it might be the most impactful single post in all of the news in some time and so it, it was a really big moment right but what i think that is is interesting here is to think about how did sam respond because you're building up this egomaniac and then everything just unravels and you know your your penultimate chapter is you know this idea of a of a pure flood of SBF, which alludes back to as you said the big, your opening chapter where you start out chapter one just talking about this moment of feeling like you were drowning in Sam because he was weirdly after everything had hit and FTX had collapsed he was everywhere he was on you know the the deal book uh, event there it was it was an incredible amount of like outpouring so. What was going on? I mean, what do you think was going on in his head as he had to confront this harsh reality? And he just, that was his reaction, just to just like blab to the world in this weird Well, the way. interesting thing, you know, right after Ian's story, and yeah, all credit to Ian. I, you know, I, I gave him a big shout out at the start too. Uh, I almost, there was a level, I almost felt guilty, you know, accepting the book deal because I was just like, shouldn't you even write this book? But whatever, <laughs> I'll take it. But that was the one time Sam ever shut up, you know, for three days after the Ian story, Sam kind of disappeared. You know, as we all know in journalism, that you couldn't get the guy off TV previously. And all of a sudden, well, also big credit to Coindesk on another point. I know it's no longer part of it, but uh, Nathan's Breakdown podcast, you know, right after the Sam Bankman Freed uh, mm-hmm. explosion was just about the only insider take that came out uh, after after FTX blew up, at least yeah, in, the, a great in the episode. Short- yeah, in the short term, right. I, I yeah. rely on it extremely heavily in yeah. that nine nine days in November chapter. 
you know, Nathan's talking in that chapter, in that podcast, and in my quotes on him in my in that chapter about how everyone within FTX was screaming at Sam to like get out there and get in front of it. And it's one time that he wasn't um, because I think he knew that his his gamble was about to fall apart and he was seeing if he could find some way that maybe, maybe he could save it. I can't help but uh, contrast the, was it yesterday that Trump uh, went on and uh, talked about his boxes of documents and and storing them and whatnot. And it's an interesting it's interesting, right? Here you have somebody who's pretty brazen, namely Sam, who certainly did not shy away from speaking his mind or rationalizing or defending this behavior, including subsequently a, a great length, right? But there was this period of silence, which I find really interesting. And it's, it's um, you got to wonder what was going through his mind, you know, during that time, right? Especially when he posted that, like the one letter and all that on Twitter and, you know, all yeah. of that kind of Wild. I have to say, reading the book, Brady, like I, you know, there were just details I had forgotten about or blocked out or whatever. Just the, things uh-huh. move so fast. And rereading it, it was like, man, I think we all knew what we were watching unfold was just absolutely the craziest story. It was just absolutely unbelievable, really, to this day. And just reading it again, it was like, oh my God, it's even crazier than I remembered it, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know, Michael, if that was your, if you had that experience as well, it was just the, yeah, yeah. Look at well, we we were all living the moment, and so yeah. you know, all, all sort of suffering a little bit of PTSD around it as well. Um, it was <laughs> that too. There's that too. Yeah. Watching the unravel was 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 wild. Ian tells an interesting story, actually, not about that story, because the thing about that story is that he was writing from home, you know, filing. He wasn't there amongst human beings, as we all live in these disembodied existences right now. But the second big scoop that he got, that I think you probably saw it, and I don't don't remember if you did, Brady, but was. When you know the the Binance deal unraveled within 24 hours, and he had spoken to to some sources at Binance who had said to him, "We've looked at the balance sheet of FTX, and it's just it's not going to happen." And you know we're, we're walking away from this, and we filed that as a report. At that moment, Ian was at a conference, and and he told this story by the way to the audience of the Polk Award that he won uh, here in New York, which was just a big proud moment for CoinDesk. But anyway, Ian got up and told the story. He was at a conference and he said he just, he filed the story. And by that stage, everybody's mind was focused on, you know, this is a crypto conference on SBF and Binance. And the, the, the notifications started hitting and he just looked at everyone looking at their screens and just, he could just see this ripple of murmur and you could l- l- see the physical impact of your story amongst how these people were doing it. As a journalist, that just stuck. Oh, wow. Those are rare, <laughs> those moments, right? Yeah. So that, that was kind of special. Hey, look, we are, we're getting close to having to wrap this up, but I think maybe one question I'd like to wind up here with you, Brady, because like books like these exist. We, we just want to tell good stories, obviously, but mm. typically there's a role of it being lessons learned, right? The cautionary tale, the big, so, so, you know, do you feel as if there are lessons learned here that there's, that there's something out of this that will come as a transitional moment for this industry or really even more broadly for humanity, for how, you know, we as a society confront people like Sam Bankman-Fried or, and or how we view things like crypto. What are, the, what are the big lessons and do you think we actually will learn them? Well, I don't know that we will because as humans, we're tribal creatures and tribes need leaders. And I think the thing that crypto shows again and again is that these tribes form and people are hungry for leaders and Sam became one of those. You know, uh, I said this in the end of one of the early 
chapter has said that, you know, the inventors of, of things, you know, you don't have to listen to everything they say, things can change over time. But it is true that one of the points that Satoshi made at the very beginning of this larger story and the thing that he was trying to convince people to do was, you know, don't trust, verify. I'm giving you the power to control your own wealth. You don't need third parties anymore. Who knows how big that idea can get, but at least in terms of, of money, that is what Satoshi set out to do. And the people who were hurt by FTX, you know, I don't mean to condemn, condemn them, they are victims, but <laughs> they were trusting, they weren't verifying, you know, they were trusting this guy, they were trusting a leader. Uh, and crypto has provided a way out from that. But the truth is, most people who use it, they, they prefer convenience over, over the, fundam- the one core fundamental difference, I think, that crypto has made and has enabled that it didn't previously exist in the world. You can hold an ephemeral thing and truly own it. So I don't think that I have the great lesson. I think the lesson's been there since the Bitcoin white paper. But the question is, Will, are we even wired to ever take heed of it? And I, I know I'm not sure that we are, but, but the lesson's there. That's slightly depressing, but I can't deny <laughs> the, the veracity of what you say. I think, you know, I'm curious, Michael, what you think the lesson is actually, as we kind of wrap up here. Well, I actually, I'm very glad that that's where Brady went, right? Because yeah. it is this, I mean, at the end of the day, I think that what crypto brings as an ethos, uh, as th- that is, you know, putting aside the culture and the different sort of philosophies, at the end of the day, the, I, the ethos, one of them is, uh, you know, don't trust, verify, that, that we can build a system that allows us to take charge of our own assets and not have to trust, right? It's that it's, the thing that's interesting about crypto is it's the capacity to not have to trust. Built the system so now you can actually do what you want to do, which is exchange value with each other and and not be stuck in this bind. So, like, you know, I don't know if we if we go through this um, really difficult moment, backlash against the industry, uh, a, a regulatory story that's really complicated, but at the same time, a confronting a world of consistent problems or AI and a sort of a, a, a very decentralized, the problem of decentralized internet without a model for how we deal with that decentralized internet. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just, maybe Sam bankman free is just one pinpoint in that argument. Look, here's a really strong case for why you don't. The fact that it is caught up with crypto itself is what makes it so complicated, right? It's like, we don't, yeah. we're not going to focus on it. AWS went down the other day and it caused all these problems, right? That's a classic example of a centralized trust problem. But it doesn't capture nearly as much energy as, as this massive moment in crypto. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I'll go back to what I tweeted when this all was breaking, which was humans gonna human, you know? And John Ray said, this is a classic case of embezzlement, a classic case of kind of classical fraud. But my take on it was, you know, humans have been exploiting each other and exploiting each other since the dawn of time. Do I love that? No. Do I think it's inevitable? Yes. Why? I don't know. Some things may be broken in our brains. I have no idea. But to your point, Brady, about people not being able to learn lessons, I think the, the fundamental lesson is, you know, it, it is, again, it's along the lines of trust but verify, but it's also that, you know, we have to guard against being too techno-chauvinistic, as Meredith Broussard puts it about all of this. But I do think that human-led systems have definitely not, you know, been altruistic in their motivations as a general matter. And that's true of organizations that have no pretense of being altruistic, and it's true of organizations that are, it's in this case, you know, fundamentally predicated, at least allegedly, on effective altruism, right? An extreme altruism, if you will. In either case, you know, humans are the root of of a lot of this. Again, I think we have to be careful. And I've always, you know, this is a line that I, I find ongoingly challenging. Ongoingly is a word. 
and it's true it of, is, of AI maybe. and AGI. Why not? Right. We'll go with it. Adverb anything. Right. I find it complicated with AI. I find it complicated with AR. I find it complicated with crypto, you know, because to some degree at the very inception of this, we are humans are building these systems, right? And we're not yet in a world where robots are building everything for us. Like humans are, are setting up some of these systems. And I want to go way back to the beginning of the, of the show where you said, Brady, you know, Sam's intention, the intentions here were not necessarily the point. You were talking about Dogecoin in that case. And you were saying the intentions were certainly not to set this up as something that was going to wind up having a, a cultish or whatever philosophy around it. It was a joke. Nevertheless, what people do with it, I think, is predicated on their own beliefs as well. So I don't know. My take on this is, you know, humans are always going to human, as I put it, and, and I, I stand by that. I think it's true. It's one of the reasons that I do think some modicum of, of disremediation and removing some of the power in those systems, making it harder for people to exploit other people, making it harder to build opaque systems that have no transparency built into them and therefore a very little accountability unless that accountability is brought by a third party, which again, we don't have in crypto. But I remain hopeful and optimistic. And, and my read on this, Brady, when I read it, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I got all the way through. And at the end, my take was that you also remain hopeful and optimistic about the promise of this space, uh, regardless of the fact that we've had you know, a series of terrible actors doing terrible things. Nevertheless, there is something at the core of this that remains very promising. But I'd love to give you the last word on that. Yeah, that's how I wanted Brady to, to close. Yeah, accurately. I was literally asked you to close this out. Are <laughs> yeah. you hopeful? I am, but I think more importantly, I just think crypto's ascent in some form, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to completely take over society, this like global flipping that a lot of people talk about. But I guess I just think that we've got to keep following the story because it's ascent in some form is just inevitable as far as I'm concerned. And people think that's a crazy thing to say, but it isn't really based on anything ideological or any sort of like worship of Satoshi. It's just based on, you know, I, I'm old enough, and I think everyone on this podcast is old enough to have been around, to have watched a bunch of big technical revolutions happen. You know, I graduated high school without an email address. And every time a bunch of smart people get into a set of technology and then some money follows them, it just never dies. Like that thing always lasts. And so we are, we are well past the threshold where crypto has enough smart people and money in it that it's going to go somewhere. And so it's been an interesting story this far. It's going to continue to be interesting. Who knows if it'll fundamentally be a force for good? I'd like to hope so, but we've got to keep covering it because it is a force forever at the very least. Alrighty. Uh, and therefore, folks, that's a bit of a sales pitch for listening to this podcast because it it's a it's a force for forever. So keep listening to it. Um, thank you very much, Brady Dale, for breaking it all down for us. Uh, jealous of you in, in one respect for having had the chances to dive into this incredibly rich story with all of its different, uh, you know, lessons learned and, and explorations of philosophy and, and the human condition. I think that's what's one of the great aspects of this book. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and being with us today. And thank you to Sheila, of course, for joining me as always as my co-host. And thank you to all of you listeners. Uh, you are listening to Money Reimagined, which you can find weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we, uh, as always, would love to hear from you. So please let us know what you think about this or any of our other episodes uh, by emailing to podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. With that, CTA, I will now sign off. Thank you so much for being here. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. 
Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagine. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening. 